Thank you for listening to this recording of Family Bible Church's Sunday morning message. We pray that God will use this word to bless and encourage you. You can see if you have a sermon note sheet, the two main points that are there, but I've really debated over this. I want to call it the academic and the applicational, you know, or the exhilarating and the the exhortation. Um, But I settle for the fulfillment of the vision and the uh, implications of the vision. But anyways, but understand that this is all just exciting stuff and what's going to seem to be academic um, up front. You're going to feel like you're in a history class in the beginning part, okay? So if you love history, you're going to love this. If you don't like history, you're going to take a nap, okay? So, um, but you need to understand that this is exhilarating stuff, okay? Um, I know I got lots of favorite portions in the scripture. I'm not going to tell you this is one of them from the perspective of the reading through it, okay? This is potentially tedious reading. That's why we're not having the Bible reading up front. We're going to do the Bible reading as we go through this, okay? Um, and so, because you read the whole thing, and you're sitting there thinking, what did I just read, okay? Well, you're going to see 372 years of history blowing through you, okay, in just a moment, okay? So as we've gone through the book of Daniel, we've seen the impact of his God. Clearly, this is all about Yahweh and, and what he has done. But the impact then of his life as well and of his writing as God has worked through him. God has allowed Daniel to be a major impact in the life of world rulers. Okay, And so I don't have time to get into it. You can look at other messages. But again, from the Nebuchadnezzar even to Cyrus, to give, letting Cyrus know who he was and for Cyrus issuing the decree um, to, to let the Jews go back and rebuild the temple, I think that's because of Daniel um, as well. In um, a few weeks ago, we got into the final half of Daniel's writings, and that's the prophetic portions, okay, 7 to 12. Um, last week, we began looking at the final portion, verses 10, or verses, chapters 10, 11, and 12. It's one long prophecy. And so last week, we only looked at the prologue. We looked at the two servants of God. We looked at the prophet of God and the messenger of God, okay, and what was going to happen But today and next week, Lord willing, the goal is for us to finish out the book of Daniel by looking at this one last prophecy, um, which is divided into two parts. There is the time of the Persians and Greeks, primarily the time of the Greeks. That's why I refer to this as the time of the Greeks, because he's going to blow past the the Persians in a half a verse. Okay? Um, But it's the time of the Persians, because we're going to talk about multiple Persian kings. And and then um, the time of the Greeks. And then next week, to end it, from the end of chapter 11 into chapter 12 with the time of the end, okay? And so, but what I want to point out is that we've already covered part of this. So if you remember a few weeks ago, we went through, um, I was going to say Romans. <laughs> Anyways, Daniel 8, okay? And we saw the prophecy regarding the, the ram and the goat, okay? You'll see that again in a moment. But this, this is going to play out with the Persians and the Greeks in the same way, okay? Um, how this plays out. And we're going to see a lot more detail um, in it. If you remember... When we were in chapter 8, we, I read a lot from First Maccabees, okay, um, as a historical document, not as biblical, it's not scriptural, okay, but it was a time of the fulfillment of the prophecies of Daniel chapter 8. It's exciting when you see these prophecies that have already been fulfilled, and they've been fulfilled in detail. And just as a, just a, a little side note here, um, people have declared, and I didn't count these, so I'm not telling you that I know this. I didn't count it. I thought about it, but it was, I didn't have time to do this. That there are over 100 prophecies in and of itself in this chapter alone that we're going to go through today that have been fulfilled in great detail. If that doesn't knock your socks off, 
I mean, it's just, it's, it's a mind-boggling thing. And again, for me, if God knows that much of history, how he's playing it out, he knows my day. Tomorrow's already happened, I just haven't experienced it. Isn't that kind of cool stuff? Okay, and, and so this gets into this, this mind-boggling uh, realm of the foreknowledge of God and the predestination of God. You know, what does God know? What does God cause? What, what, is, what is history? Because he's declared it. So before we get into it, two reminders. First of all, the telescopic nature of prophecy. So remember, we talked about this, that a lot of times in prophecy, um, when it's being written, first of all, it's being written from whose perspective? Jerusalem, okay? Always the Jews in Jerusalem, okay? That's from the perspective of where it comes, unless he's going to tell us otherwise. And he's going to tell us otherwise today. But what you're going to see is when we get to the king of the south, the king of the north and the king of the south, that they are, they are dynamically structured right above the promised land and right below the promised land. This whole prophecy is, is all impacting the promised land, the Jews. Get it? Okay? And we're going to see how it impacts Jerusalem as well. So all prophecies from that perspective. But, but it, when it's given, it's given with like, like these highlights. So it's the telescopic nature of prophecy, okay? Where you're on the ridge, you're on this, and you're looking out there, and all you see is all these other ridges that are out there. And you may be looking way out here, and sorry for those on Zoom, you don't see the, the, the red thing. But anyways, um, but you're looking at that where the arrow is, way out there, right? And, but you see all these other mountaintops that may seem like they're taller than the ones that are in front of it and all that kind of stuff and you just don't have a perspective of it and that's what prophecies are is you're just given you're given the high notes the highlights but there's a whole lot of life going on in the midst of the valleys okay and you are going to see that in great detail today as again as we fly through 372 years of history the other fun thing about this is if you go to daniel chapter 9 remember the prophecy we talked about there it was the 70 what Seven, 77s, okay? And 69 of the sevens, seven-year intervals, or 483 years, were from the decree of Artaxerxes to the cutting off Messiah. What we're going to talk about today is a part of that 483 years, okay? And what's really kind of fun from this side, again, I got a lot of sides, doesn't it? I hope you get that this is exciting stuff, okay? That this is being declared again, verse 1, in the third year of Cyrus. What happened in the first year of Cyrus? Daniel administration ends, but what more importantly happens in the first year of Cyrus? Say again. Somebody said it. The temple wasn't rebuilt. He gave them permission to go back to the land and to begin the process. Now, it takes a long time for them to do it, and we're going to go through the the different times. We're not going to talk about it today, but it goes through a long process. So that's already happened. When, when, When Daniel gets his vision and he's writing this thing, okay, the Jews have already gotten permission to go, okay? And so there's already a group of, of Jews that are heading to the, to the promised land to rebuild the temple. So when you, when you read what we're going to read, Daniel's getting this vision of what's actually going to happen to the temple that they're going to rebuild. You get it? It's going to be rebuilt, and some of the stuff we're going to read today, is, 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 this is going to happen to it, and this is going to happen to the promised land. So you've got to understand, this is, an ex- this is not an exciting prophecy for Daniel. That's why he's just overwhelmed, why he's undone when he's talking to the messenger, because, you know, he's, from the Jewish perspective, you're thinking, whoa, we're going to have the temple, and this is going to be exciting. And yet he knows the devastation that's going to occur through this prophecy. Okay? The other thing, then, as a reminder, is history is really his story. This is all about God. When you, when you consider history, 
you've got to consider the fact that God has a plan, God has a purpose. You read the book of Revelation, it's going to happen in the future, right? God has a plan, God has a purpose. It's going to happen just as how it plays out. There's going to be a, not necessarily from the earth's perspective, or are we going to be seeing a seal that's open, but when the seal is open, what is recorded there is going to happen. There's going to be some person or some entity that's going to have given a, a crown to, to, to conquer and to conquer, okay? And then after that, there's going to be a, a bunch of fighting and wars that are going to be on the earth. And after that, there's going to be this great financial earthquake. And after that, there's going to be pestilence and, and, and dying all over the earth. A quarter of the earth is going to die, okay? When we read this stuff and we see how God has answered it in detail, and you start thinking about what's going to be revelation, it's going to happen just like God declared it to be in the book of Revelation. So you get where I'm going here on this, okay? The implications of what we're going to be reading about um, are just very phenomenal, very exciting to me, okay? So this goes back to our our message on on chapter 8. I get double deuce out of my my great graphics ability. Anyways, so you'll see in a moment. Don't miss it, okay? Uh, But in Daniel 11, verse 2, we read three more kings. In fact, I want to read this, so we want to start off. Let's go to chapter 10. Because I said we're going to read this as we go. So we're going to start in chapter 10, verse 20, and we're going to read down to chapter 11, verse 4. Okay? So if I, if I get too caught up in this, say, wait, wait, read the scripture. Okay? So beginning at verse 20, chapter 10. Okay? We read. Then he said, this is the uh, messenger who I think potentially is Jesus incarnate. Okay? Um, then he said, do you know why I have come to you? And now I must return to fight against the prince of Persia. And when I have gone forth, indeed the prince of Greece will come. But I will tell you what is noted in the scripture of what? Truth. The words of truth. These words are true. You get it? God's word is always true. I don't care what anybody else says. I'm going to come back, and this isn't a bank. According to the words of truth, okay, no one upholds me against these except Michael, your prince. Also, then chapter 11, also in the first year of Darius the Mede, remember Darius the Mede is the governor of the, of, of the province of Babylon. He's not the king. Okay, this isn't Darius the first, Darius the second, or Darius the third. We'll talk about those Dariuses in a moment. You can see them up um, on the screen, some of them. Okay, so this is Darius the Mede. He's just a governor. Again, if you remember the Persians and the Medes, um, joined together. The Medes, the Median kingdom, was actually the more powerful at first, but the Persians, uh, um, Cambyses, I think it was, um, was the one who overtook the Medians, okay? And so it became the Persian kingdom from that perspective, okay? That's why the, you had the bear that was lopsided and that kind of stuff because the Persians wound up overtaking the Medes. So Darius the Mede, okay, because that's the Mede side of this joint kingdom, he becomes the governor of the, the most influential province, and that's the province of Babylon, okay? Which is important. We're, we're going to get into the Seleucids. You'll see that it's, it's the same province, okay? So, no, um, so also in the first year of Darius the Mede, I, even I, stood up to confirm him and to strengthen him. And now I will tell you the truth. Again, truth. Behold, three more kings will rise in Persia, and the fourth shall be far richer than them all by his strength, through his riches, he shall stir up against the realm of Greece. Okay, so there is a lot of debate on who these kings are, okay? Um, I've got my, again, I didn't give it to you this time, but 
you know, I've got my little chronology thing going on here. And if you can see the yellow, okay, all the yellows are the different Persian kings, okay? There are more than four, okay? So the debate is, who are the four? Do you do it symbolically? And it's this one, this one, this one. I really believe it's four coming out of this. After I've, I've debated, and I don't even know what I preached back in 2009 um, when I went through the book of Revelation and we came, did a stop through Daniel, I might have said something different. But I, I've, I've come to the point this week where I think it is literal. This is totally literal. It's the first four. Um, Ahasuerus and Artaxerxes um, were, were minor players, but they were kings, okay? It's Darius. So Cyrus II the Great is the one who began to really expand the... Um, the, the Medo-Persian Empire. But it's Darius the Great, Darius the First, the Great, okay? And there's going to wind up being, we're not really going to talk about the different Dariuses, but there's three Dariuses at the end. So when Alexander comes in a moment, it's against Darius the Third. So there's, again, multiple years of history that's being played out in just this verse, okay, that, that we're looking at, okay? So, but it's Darius the First that began to push the kingdom up into Greece, up into Ionia, in Thrace, in, in, in the Macedons, okay? And so over here is Greece, okay? And so that's what's critical from the very beginning of this, okay? These three Persian kings are going to rise up, and then the, the fourth of them, that's Darius I, okay? He's going to be pushing into Greece. And that's not going to sit well with the Grecian people. It wouldn't sit well with us if Putin decided to, after he's done with this, this nation, this nation, nation, he's finally going to come into the United States. We'd finally say, what? Okay, enough's enough. We're not going to play with this anymore. Hopefully we'd say that anyway. And so, so same thing. Okay, Darius, so um, um, Cyrus and Darius are pushing. And so now they're pushed out there and they pushed too far. Okay, and so if you remember, we've talked about this. There was a man named Philip. Okay, um, he was the father of... Alexander the Great. We have a lot of greats, don't we? Cyrus the Great, Darius I the Great, and Alexander the Great. But, um, but Philip was the guy who began the movement to say enough is enough. And so he realized that on their own, they could not stand. But if they had a confederation, if they had a, 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 a togetherness, that they could stand together. And so he began to form a confederation throughout the Ionias, throughout the Macedons. Um, and so it wasn't always a pleasant joining of forces. He became a conqueror, in a sense, through that area as well. But he was making this, this, this form in this, this union, if you would, okay? And it was, he, after he died, it was his son, Alexander then, who came on the scene. And so Alexander comes on the scene, and we read, this, we read that in verse 3, right? That a mighty king shall arise who shall rule with dominion and do according to his will. And so he will... Alexander, as we saw, he's going to come flying across the earth, and he's going to crush me to Persia. Yes, I got the reaction. Okay, now, all together say, wow, one, two, three, wow. Okay, good, okay, so it's, it's over with. That's the last time you'll see that slide. Anyways, so, but I had to get one more play out of it. So, <laughs> no, there you go. See, I tell you, it's amazing. Hollywood should contact me. Anyways, so, but anyways, but that's it. So, there we go. So, Alexander comes flying across the the. the the, the, and he wipes them out all in a period of just a couple years. It's an amazing thing. Alexander only reigned for 13 years. Isn't it amazing? Okay. But he did most of his damage in just three or four years. He just came soaring across. Okay. And so you have this mighty king who's going to rise, who shall rule with great dominion and do according to his will. That was Alexander the Great. Okay. And so now we're going to slide because we're told, beginning now in verse 5. Okay. So that was 
Um, if you're looking at your sermon note sheets, you see you don't really have no blanks until we get to the end. That was the Persia and Alexander. Now we're going to get to the Ptolemies and Seleucids. So let's read now um, this next portion. We're going to read verse by verse as we go a couple different verses. So let's do verse 5. Because also, um, also the king of the south... I'm going to go back to verse 4. Okay, sorry. And when he has arisen, his kingdom shall be broken up and divided toward the four winds of heaven, but not among his posterity, nor according to his dominion, with which he ruled. For his kingdom shall be uprooted, even for those, for others beside him. So, Alexander dies. Does anybody know what city he died in? This is kind of fun. Nope, didn't like Alexandria. It's a good guess, though. He had lots of Alexandrias. He loved himself. And he made countless Alexandrias all along the point of his conquest. No, he died in Babylon. He died in Babylon. This is exactly right. Isn't that kind of cool? He went back to Babylon. Okay? Babylon is so huge when it comes to rulers of the, of the world, always wanting to be in Babylon. Okay? And it goes all the way back to Tower of Babel, right? I mean, that's where it all begins. It's really kind of an amazing thing. But when he dies, okay, his, um, four of his kings wind up taking over. Now, not immediately, okay, but as a whole, they took over. So we have Lysicomus, or I'm sorry, Cassander, who, who took the Macedons. Okay? Then we have Lysicomus, who took over Thrace, in that area, you can see it's kind of like the western portion of Asia Minor. Um, then you had Seleucids, the Seleucus, the first, we'll talk about in a moment, um, took over the uh, province of Babylon in what was the Syrian um, Persian um, Empire. And then the Ptolemies, who went down and they took over Egypt in northern Africa. Okay, So um, what's going to happen, though, is that in, in days coming, we'll see this in a moment, okay? The Romans are going to the Romans are going to grow, okay? And so uh, Cassander and Lysicomus, they're going to go away, okay? And so boom, they go away. And the rest of our the rest of our prophecy now is really only regarding the Seleucids and the Ptolemies, okay? The Seleucids are the kings of the north, and the Ptolemies are the king of the south. So when we read about the ki- the king of the north and the king of the south, it's going to be like that mountaintop picture, okay? Where we're going to be hitting the skipping over the, on top of these mountains when we talk about the kings, okay? And from verse to verse, the kings are going to potentially change, okay? There's going to be a lot written about Antiochus III and a lot written about Antiochus IV Epiphanes, okay? And so, but we'll talk about that as we go. You have them on your, on your sermon note sheet along with the, the, the circa, the uh, around when, okay? For those who care about the history portion of it, you have the, um, the secular history dates. I don't necessarily say I agree with all those datings, but that's what is commonly given, and we'll just accept those for today, okay? So, verse 5, we continue reading, says, Also the king of the south shall become strong as well as one of his princes, and he shall gain power over him and have dominion. His dominion shall be a great dominion, okay? So, I'm going to make sure I'm reading where I'm reading. Yeah, so verse 5, okay? So the first thing that happens here, okay? So you have the, the divided up into four, and the, the king of the south is going to become greater. That's the Ptolemies, okay? They're going to become greater faster, okay? Now, Seleucus I would have become greater faster, but he began having um, a, a struggle with this guy named uh, Antigonus, okay? And so Antigonus attacked him, and Seleucus I, who um, had like an entitlement mentality, he, he believed that he was a descendant of the gods. His um, mother declared that, that she was actually impregnated by one of the, the Greek gods. And so that became on. His father was one of the generals who fought with uh, Alexander and even with Philip, Alexander's father. So Seleucus was kind of less, it was in this particular spot, you know. And so he had this entitlement mentality. And so he just, 
he wasn't prepared for the battle. He just thought no one's going to touch him. But Antigonus did. Antigonus came against him. And so there was a, there was a fight for, this, for, the, for, the, for the throne over in this area. And so um, Seleucus I fled from Babylon. He goes down and to seek refuge with Ptolemy I. And so Ptolemy brings him in and allows him to be one of his generals of his army. Okay? And so apparently they talk together and they decide as their first conquest, they're going to conquest this area again. So they come back up against Babylon. Seleucus then has his army. And so Seleucus enters into Babylon. He takes Babylon again and he, and he makes himself the king Okay, from, from that perspective. And so he begins to gain control once again. But it's a period of time. You can see 323 to 305 that this is going on. So you've got 18 years of history all playing out in this one verse. Okay, But as you read the verse, it, it makes sense then, doesn't it? As you begin to read it, it's like you got this guy from the south. He becomes, he becomes stronger. But then one of his guys that wants to become Seleucus first goes and he gets his own dominion and his own dominion becomes what bigger so Seleucus first kingdom winds up becoming a stronger empire becomes a stronger empire than the Ptolemies and we're going to have a battle between these two you'd think that Seleucus the first would be really um, appreciative of everything the Ptolemies done for him but everybody always wants to be what number one that's exactly right not content to be to share the wealth you know, we're going to, we want it all, okay? So let's go on, and we're going to read now verses 6, 7, and 8, okay? It says, at the end of some years, they shall join forces. So who are the they? The king of the north and the king of the south, okay? So they're going to join forces, okay? For the daughter of the king of the south shall go to the king of the north to make an agreement, but she shall not retain the power of her authority, and neither he nor his authority shall stand but she shall be given up with those who brought her and with him who begot her and with him who strengthened her in those times. But from a branch of her roots, one shall rise in his place who shall come with an army, enter the fortress of the king of the north and deal with them and prevail. Say, well, what is all that to be? Well, this is kind of fun stuff. This is the, the intrigue of nations, you know, and, and you, if you've ever looked at like the, the um, Europe and, um, and who can actually become the king of England, you know, you could wind up having the, so, Sam, you're here. I think you got all this down pat, right? How, how long would it take for somebody from the Netherlands or Hollands to actually take the throne in England? 200 deaths, okay? And so, because of the fact you had William of Orange, right, who for a moment of time was the king of England, yes? Yeah. And so, no one ever thinks about that, okay? But they all intermarried with each other, okay? It was to secure the crown and that kind of stuff and secure peace and, and make all these arrangements. But it didn't always work the way they wanted it to work, and this is one of those occasions because the... Um, the whoop, where am I at? Oh, I, I, I didn't do all my graphics. So... Oh, so he goes down there, and he goes back, and they take it. Okay, so now here we go. So we have the alliances formed, okay? Sorry, I put all these graphics and I waste them. All right, so... So we have this alliance that goes forth, and we have Ptolemy, okay, the second. So now we're at Ptolemy the second, not Ptolemy the first. He gives his daughter, Berenike, okay? So remember, they're not Egyptians. They're what? They're Greeks. Remember this. That's not an Egyptian giving a Syrian. It's a Greek giving a Greek to a Greek, okay? So you have Ptolemy the second giving his daughter, Berenike, that's a Greek name, okay? Or Bernice, Berenike, okay? giving Berenike to Antiochus II, okay? And so, um, Ptolemy dies, though. Ptolemy II dies. Now, you've got to understand that when Antiochus II receives Berenike, okay, he's already married, the Laodice, okay? And so, but Ptolemy II doesn't like the fact that 
that Berenike is going to be just another wife. He wants her to be his wife, his only wife. So that means that Antiochus II has got to get rid of Laodice, okay? And so he gets rid of Laodice, and he gets rid of her two sons, okay? Kind of puts them aside. And he takes Berenike as, as his bride, okay? All's good. Good, good, good alliance going on, and uh, things, are, things are happy. Ptolemy II dies just two years later. Antiochus II says what? I want Laodice back. I don't want Berenike. I never wanted her anyway. And so he takes Berenike. He puts her aside with her two kids now that she's already had to him. Okay. And he brings Laodike back. Well, women, what would you think of your husband if he put you aside in order to take another wife and had a couple kids? And then, then he decides, oh, okay, now Ptolemy dies. I'll get rid of Berenike. And I, I'm going to bring you back, right? You think, oh, I'm so thrilled. I love this guy. You hate this guy. He's going to go down. And he does. He goes down. Laodice poisons Antiochus, okay? And um, has Berenike then murdered as well, okay? So she wipes out Berenike and her sons. Yeah, a lot of you women are going, yeah, that's my kind of woman. <laughs> Anyways, <laughs> isn't prophecy fun? Anyways, so see, now you like this chapter, don't you? Okay, so anyways... So Laodice, she wipes out Antiochus, she poisons him, she kills off Berenike and her sons, and she sets up Seleucus II, her son, as the new king. Okay? And so that's all what's playing out here in verses 5 to 7. Okay? Or I'm 6 to 8. So let's read verses 9 and 10 now. Okay? Because we were there. Oh, that's 6. Wait. So let's do 7 and 8. So, oh yeah, because this is part. I missed this part. This is the fun part, too. So her brother becomes the new king down in Egypt, right? He becomes Ptolemy III, right? And so he says, ah, that's okay. I don't care about Berenike anyway. She's a girl. Who cares about girls? No, not at all. This is all about honor, right? And so he looks up there, and Tigus, or, yeah, and Tigus um, disrespects Berenike. This guy blows, blows it, like, all over the place, okay? And so when he disrespects Berenike, and then Laodice kills Berenike and her two sons, Ptolemy III says, enough is enough, and he comes up and he attacks, okay? And so and he just destroys, pulverizes the, the north, and, um, and you can see that he kills Laodice, and then he takes back spoils, idols of silver, and back to Egypt. So he just, he just goes up, he destroys them, and, and, and then takes back the spoils, okay? So that's where that fulfills then from this perspective. Okay, so let's go to 9 and 10. Verse 9 and 10. It says, also the king of the north, notice that's in Talisius, but it helps us out that we're still there with the, the, the king of the north. And he shall come to the kingdom of the king of the south, but shall return to his own land. However, his sons shall stir up strife and assemble a multitude of great forces, and one shall certainly come and overwhelm and pass through them. Then he shall return to his fortress and stir up. So you can kind of see it. It's that the king of the north is going to come to the king of the south, which means he's going to what? He's going to come just to have fun, right? No, he's going to come and attack, okay? And so, so he gets a little bit stronger and says, I remember what you did, so I'm coming back at you. So he comes back, but it's a failed invasion. Seleucus II fails in that, and so as we read in verse 9, he returns to his land. He doesn't have any victory, but he's not content at that. He has, he has ingrained this now from, from what it was with Seleucus I and Ptolemy I. It is now totally changed. 
okay? The landscape has now changed. It is now in a landscaping of, of great aggression, right? And so his sons, Seleucus III and Antiochus III, they continue the war against the south, okay? And that's what we read in verse 10, okay? Um, sorry, yeah, verse 10. So the king of the south should be moved with rage and go out and fight against him. Um, all right, I'm, I'm lost in my stuff here. Ah, I am reading verse 11. Thank you so much. Yeah. And his sons shall stir up strife and assemble a multitude of great forces. And one shall certainly come and overwhelm and pass through. Then he shall return with his fortress and stir up strife. Okay. And that's talking about Antiochus III. So from here, we want to continue on, though. And we want to read verses 11 to 16. And we'll blend that thought process into the rest of this. Okay. And the king of the south shall be moved with rage and go out and fight with him. And the king of the north, who shall muster a great multitude, but the multitude will be given into the hand of his enemy. And when he has taken, taken away the multitude, his heart will be lifted up, and he will be cast down, cast down tens of thousands, but he will not prevail. For the king of the north will return and muster a multitude greater than the former, and shall certainly come to the end of some years with a great army and with much equipment." Okay, so we're oh, going to go to 16. Okay, now in those times, many shall rise up against the king of the south. Also, violent men of your people shall exalt themselves in fulfillment of the vision. We'll talk about this in a moment, but they shall fail. So the kingdom of the north, the king of the north shall come and build a siege mound and take a fortified city. And the forces of the south shall not withstand him. Even his choice troops shall have no strength to resist. But he who comes against him shall do according to his will, and no one shall stand against him. He shall stand in the glorious land and, and with destruction in his power. So you can kind of picture here that there's going to be a lot of wars going back and forth. Okay? Okay? But there's a couple key statements that are talking about your people and what? The glorious land. Which means that this is beginning to affect what? Israel. Okay? And so what do we see? So we see Ptolemy IV attacks back, okay, after Seleucus III attacked. And, and Tigus, I'm sorry, Antiochus III, and he builds a much greater army, and they meet in Raphia, okay? So the fortress of Raphia was like the northern um, extreme of Ptolemy, of, to, of the Ptolemaic Empire, okay? You had to come through the fortress of Raphia to get into the, the Ptolemaic um, Empire. And so the battle ensues at this moment, okay? And Antiochus is humiliated. He's got this much greater army, but he fills miserably. And he's going back home with his tail tucked between his legs, okay? However, pride is pride at all points of, gener of, all points of history, right? And as a king, you don't want to return home what? Say again? Empty-handed. Empty so, he comes down, he attacks the south, okay? Um, oh, did I miss? Oh, but he comes back. Um, oh, because we're going to do this in a moment. Okay, so he comes back down, right? And he, and, he, and he fights now against Scopus, General Scopus. And what you need to understand is that after Ptolemy IV died, Ptolemy V, you know Ptolemy V isn't even noted in here, okay? That Ptolemy V becomes the new king, if you would, of the Ptolemies, but he's four years old. Kind of hard to reign when you're, what, four years old, okay? So there's others who are helping him out, okay? And so General Scopus is there, and, and General Scopus is the... Um, the one who winds up surrendering, okay? And so at this point, at this point, Judea, which was a part of the Ptolemaic Empire, actually becomes a part of the Seleucid Empire, okay? Um, and so we'll come back to the glorious land in a moment. 
Um, but I want to note before we go on past it, verse 14. Okay? Note what it says in verse 14. This is really interesting to me, and it's impactful for us. We want to think this one through. Okay? Um, it says, Now in those times many shall rise up against the king of the south. Also violent men of your people, violent men of your people, shall exalt themselves in fulfillment of the vision, but they shall what? Fall. Fail. Okay? Now, what I want you to understand, and this is kind of a really cool thought process, okay? Do you remember how Daniel was reading the book of Jeremiah, right? And, and Jeremiah is writing about the 70 years of exile, right? And Daniel's what? He's praying about it because he realizes what? He's living it. He's living in it, right? And is he at the 70th year? What is this? You know, so he understands that I'm living. I'm living in these days, Okay? The book of Daniel is already written. Do you get it? There are people who have read, read his what? His writings, his visions. So within the vision that God is giving of this time, he's writing about people who are going to read the vision. And they're going to try in their own strength to what? Either fulfill it or defy it. Whichever way you want to look at it, Okay. They're, they're going to come, because it says in fulfillment of the vision, right? And so, but they're going to what? They're going to fail, they're going to fall, because it wasn't about them. It wasn't about them. So God's saying, look, and there are going to be people who are going to rise up in their own self-righteousness, and they're going to think that they're the guy, and, or they're the people, and they're going to do this thing, and God says, it ain't going to happen that way. Because my plan is what? My plan. Be careful as you read the book of Revelation. You should read the book of Revelation. Blessed are those who read and those who hear the words of this prophecy. That's what it starts off with, Revelation chapter 1, verse 3. Okay? Blessed are those. You should be reading it. You should understand it. We'll talk about 1 Thessalonians 5 in just a few moments. Okay? And so, it's for us to know. It's for us to understand. Okay? But be careful. Be careful of thinking you're the, you're, you're, you are the end-all of end-alls. And that you're the one who's going to be fulfilling it. Now, you might be. If you're living in a day, maybe God will use you in, in some manner. In, in like that. But there are a lot of people who set dates who de- declare that they know, and, 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 they, and, they, and they try to do all these things. There are people who are putting out, I praise God for the, for the gospel being put forth all over the world, but there are people who actually believe if they do that, they force Jesus to come right now. Because when the gospel is put into the whole world, then Jesus has got to come back. And so, they feel like, and so I feel like this could be stated about people in our days who are seeking to fulfill the vision. And... and, and and it's not theirs to fulfill. God's going to fulfill it how he wants to fulfill it in the way he's going to fulfill it. Do you get it? And it may be just, it may be you. It may be one of you that God is going to use to do that, but it may not be. More highly likelihood that what? It's not me than it is me. Okay? But God can use who he wants to use. But So I think this is, I just, I love the, the, the statement, you know. <laughs> God's talking about people who are going to try to fulfill this vision when they read it. And, and they're not the guys. Okay? And so, so we have all this happen, okay? So now, beginning of verse 17, we have another alliance concept that's going to begin, okay? So verse 17, 18, and 19. So he shall also set his face to enter with the strength of his whole uh, kingdom. I skipped that part about he shall stand in the glorious land with destruction of his power. Sorry about that. I didn't have it on my slide. So back in the end of verse um, 16. So on the way back through, Antiochus III, this time victorious, because he now owns... Um, the, uh, what do you call it? He owns the, that area, the, the, the province of Judea. Now he goes back and he sets himself up as God, as king. Okay? 
Uh, he goes through there. Big point. I missed it. I'm sorry. So verse 17. And he shall set his face to enter with the strength of his whole kingdom in upright ones with him. Thus shall he do. And he shall give him the daughter of women to destroy it. But she shall not stand with him or before him. After this, he shall turn his face to the coastlands and take away many and shall take many. But a ruler shall bring the reproach against them to an end. And with the reproach removed, he shall turn back on him. Then he shall turn his face toward the fortress of his own land, but he shall stumble and fall and not be found. Okay, now I said, what does all this mean? This is fun stuff, okay? Because in these three verses, the Roman Empire begins to be the big player. Okay, they, start, they, they begin to enter into the picture. So we read off the bat, Antiochus III gives his daughter Cleopatra. Anybody ever heard that name before? Okay, this is not her, but this is her namesake. Okay, this is where she's going to come from. Okay, so... He gives his daughter to Cleopatra I, to Ptolemy V. Remember, Ptolemy V was how old when he became king? Four. So he's still a young guy, okay? And so, um, so he gives Cleopatra I to Ptolemy V to create an alliance and solidify his position. But she what? She sides with Ptolemies. She doesn't like her dad so much. I mean, he's just giving her away as a prize. Here, you take her, you know, and solidify the relationship. And she goes down there, and you know what? She decides, I kind of like the Ptolemies. In fact, I like them better than I like my dad. He didn't want any part of me anyway. And so she sides with the Ptolemy. Rather than giving information to her dad, <laughs> makes sense? He was hoping that she would go down clandestinely, right? And set it all up so he could come down and, and they take over the whole thing via marriage and everything else. But it didn't work that way. She actually became, becomes Ptolemaic um, in her demeanor, okay? And so Antigas says, enough's enough. I'm going, I'm going back, right? So that doesn't work so well. So now he realizes that Rome is becoming a player because Rome has now come alongside the Ptolemies. The Romans have chosen sides. They've chosen the side of the Ptolemies. That's why later you hear of Antony and Cleopatra. Cleopatra, actually, again, I don't, can't remember which one. is the third or the fourth or whatever. Um, actually, it was with Julius Caesar. She's with Mark Antony. It's all with the what? The Romans, okay? So the, the Romans become the player. They, they choose the sides of the Ptolemies. And so these are the people coming from the coast, onto the coast. And so now Seleucus, or um, yeah, Antiochus III, he decides, you know what? In order to beat the Ptolemies, I have to beat Rome. I got to start, I got to weaken Rome and then I can start taking out the Ptolemies again. So he begins to fight the Romans, but he is repelled. He loses. So he says, okay, fine. I won't fight him there. I'll fight him up here. Because Rome has come, uh, has expanded um, into the Macedons, in, in, into Thrace. So he says, I'll go up that way. Okay? So I'll begin to fight him up there. Worse. Totally worse. Fails miserably. So bad that he winds up having to give hostages, provide political hostages, including his son, Antiochus IV, Epiphanes, right? Who is going to become the name that we're going to be looking at, the type of Antichrist, okay? He is given as a, a political prisoner to Rome, and then Antiochus III is also then forced to pay taxes, um, tribute, to Rome as well. So instead of him overcoming Rome so that he could clear the way to go back to the Ptolemies, he actually winds up becoming a um, subservient of, of the Romans of that moment. Okay? So um, he winds up then going into the temple of Ilimus, um to loot it because he doesn't have the money to pay Rome. 
So he goes to Elymas, he, he loots it. But the people in, in Elymas, when they see that their temple is looted, don't take it what? Too kindly. And so he winds up dying, not in a war, but at the hands of people who are enraged of what he's done to their God. Okay? And so after him comes Seleucus IV, who is the brother of Antigus IV. Okay? So Antigus IV, who should have been the, the, the next heir, right? Where is he at? He's in Rome. Okay? He's a political prisoner in Rome. So his brother Seleucus IV becomes the king of, of the, the Seleucid Empire. Okay? He um, only lasts a, a short period of time. We'll talk about this. So I failed to read this. You should have told me. Bob, you want to read this? We're only going to read two verses here, verse 20 and 21. But the point of this one is the next 14, 15 verses is all going to be about Antiochus IV. Okay? The bulk of this is going to be about Antiochus IV. So let's read verse 20 and 21, though. Okay? There shall arise in his place one who imposes taxes on the glorious kingdom, but within a few days he shall be destroyed, but not in anger and battle. And in his place shall arise a vile person to whom they will not give the honor of royalty, but he shall come in peaceably and seize the kingdom by intrigue. Okay? So, Seleucus IV becomes the next king. So, again, he owes tribute to Rome. He doesn't have the money, just like his dad didn't have the money. Okay? So now, he's already, dad's already gone to Elymas, right? He's looted the temple there. He died for that. So, where is Seleucus going to get his money? Jerusalem. He's going to go into Judea, and he's going to tax the people that are there. The people are gracious. They're excited about this whole moment. Oh, we've been waiting for you to come and tax us. We're so excited. didn't happen that way, right? And so they're not very happy about it either. But in some mysterious way, we're not told, the, um, sorry, Seleucus IV winds up dying. It's not in a war. It's not necessarily anybody knows by an assassination. He just winds up dying. Now, before he died, before this happened, he wound up taking his son and sending one of his sons to Rome as a political prisoner in order to free his brother Antiochus IV. That's kind of cool, isn't it? It's a nice brotherly thing to do. And so Antiochus IV, Epiphanes, is on his way back um, from Rome, and he's in the area of Greece, Athens, um, when Seleucus IV dies. Okay? And so now all of a sudden you have a vacuum of power in, in, uh, in the Seleucid Empire. And so the, the tax collector um, who Seleucid IV had set up to do all this, um, actually, so he winds up being the guy who kills Seleucus IV, too. Um, that's right, remembering all this. He, he's the one who, who wound up causing the, him to die mysteriously. And so he then seeks to take the power in the vacuum. Because now all of a sudden, Seleucid's son is where? In Rome as a prisoner, and Tigus IV isn't back yet. Well, Tigus IV gets word of this, and so he rises up an army in Greece. Okay, And so it's king of... Um, uh, I'm failing. To, anyways, one of the kings there up in, in the Ionian territories, he says, fine, we'll, we'll side with you. Um, and so they come with an army back down. And so um, the tax collector's guys, and I can't remember his name, he says, I don't want any part of this. He says, you can have it. So Antiochus IV comes in. He is really the rightful heir, okay? But not necessarily because Seleucus IV has already was the king, right? Well, we're not necessarily told this, but Seleucus IV, we're, we're told about this vile person who's going to come in, right? Seleucus IV had another son. His oldest son was sent as the political prisoner, 
But in order that there would be no questions about who is then the rightful heir, what do you think Antiochus IV Epiphanes does? Kills his nephew. <laughs> exactly right. Wipes out anybody who potentially had a claim. Okay? Not a very nice guy. Okay? He should be thankful that he's back. He's not out of prison. But again, the quest for power is always there. Right? So he comes in. And so um, after 13 years of imprisonment, okay? and what's kind of fun here is he calls himself Epiphanes. Okay? But the people, do I have the slide here? No, I don't have a slider, so let's go back to the one. Um, the people refer to him as Eminenes. Epiphanes means the illustrious one. Eminenes means the insane. And so he referred to himself as Epiphanes, and so if you ever look him up, Tigus the Fourth, it'll come up in Tigus the Fourth Epiphanes, but understand that a lot of the people called him Eminenes, the, the, the insane one, the idiot. Okay? So that's who he is. So we want to read verses 22 to 24 for this. Okay? So we're sliding through history fast. With the force of a flood, they shall be swept away. Like, who, who are they? I mean, we're just like jumped into this. With the force of a flood, they shall be swept away from before him and be broken. And also the prince of the covenant. Oh, prince of the covenant. That has a, a ring to it. Who, prince of the covenant, that means it must be talking about who? Israel. Good, okay. So prince of the covenant. And after the league is made with him, he shall act deceitfully, for he shall come up and be strong with a small number of people. He shall enter peaceably even into the richest places of the province, and he shall do what his fathers have not done, nor his forefathers. He shall disperse among them the plunder, spoil, and riches, and he shall devise his plans um, against the strongholds, but only for a time. So in Tigus IV, when he becomes a king, immediately he begins to push a Hellenization um, platform, the Greek culture, um, into Judea, Okay. That before this, they let the Jewish people alone to do the Jewish thing. And Tiga says, no. The Greek culture is, is, is going across the world. It's going to go there too. And so he begins to push Greek culture into the, the promised land, okay, into the glorious land. And so you can see he takes a bribe from Jason, Onias III's um, brother. Onias III is the high priest, okay? He is the one who should be the high priest. But his brother, again, wanting power, goes to Antiochus IV and offers them a bribe, money, in order to deceit Ananias and to make him, Jason, as the high priest. Antiochus, um, Antiochus the, the fourth needs money, right? Because he's still paying what? Tribute, right? So I'll take that. Sounds like a good idea. He deceits Ananias, makes Jason. But then Menelaus comes next, and Menelaus says what? I'll do the same thing. I'll offer more. This is going to be a profitable business. You know, figure out who the highest bidder is for the, the high priest job. But you do it one at a time because if you do it all one time, you only get one payment, right? And so if you just let them keep coming, you know, you keep getting all the different payments. And so Menelaus pays a little bit more and he deceits Jason, okay? And so people don't like this a whole lot. And so there's winds up being this great uproar that's going on in Jerusalem. But we're not to the Maccabees yet, okay? This is all before Maccabees. It's coming up pretty quickly here, okay? And so... One of the things that he did horrendously, okay, and we kind of see this uh, mentioned here, not by name, okay, is he even built a gymnasium um, in, in Judea. And you got to, say again, a gymnasium, a gymnasium, okay? Gune, so, so, a, 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 so we don't get this in English, but the Greeks with the gymnasium, the gymnasium, they exercise naked, Okay? In their nudie tutie. Okay? 
as we say to the, our little guys, right? Don't come out in your nudie tootie, you know? That's for in the bathroom. You don't come out here. And so, but they did. Abhorrent of abhorrences to the, to the true Jewish people. Do you understand? Those who weren't embracing Greek culture, who wanted to remain pure for their God, now you're going too far. He's going to go further. Okay? He's pushing. He's pushing the envelope. Do you ever feel like our culture is pushing our envelope? Can I ask the question, do you accept it? We can say no, but I venture to say you already have. The culture isn't just pushing now. It's been pushing. It takes two generations for a people to know not their God. Book of Judges, check me out. In the 1920s, we made a declaration as a nation that we no longer believe in a creator God. That we believed in a, in a God of evolution. And we began to teach. You say, how does that happen? We began to teach evolution alongside the creator God. We began to teach our children that there was no creator God, that you were evolved. You came from a monkey, you came from amoebas, you came from whatever. Okay? One generation, biblical generation, is 40 years. What happened in the 1960s? They took what out of school? Prayer and Bible reading. Why did they take prayer and Bible reading out of the school in the 1960s? Because for a whole generation, you just taught a generation that there is no God. And that creation is not true. That's really evolution. So why are you having them talk to somebody who doesn't exist and read a fairy tale? Does that make sense? So they take prayer and Bible reading out of school. You got free love going on. You got Woodstock and all that kind of stuff. I grew up in those days. I wasn't a believer. I loved those days, okay? From an unbeliever's perspective, okay? But it wasn't a godly, righteous perspective, if you're tracking what I'm saying, okay? One generation later is the 2000s. What's happening today? You got kids killing kids, like drive-by shootings and all that kind of stuff. You got abortion on demand. And what's happening right now? The homosexual movement. It's not just a debate whether it should be accepted. It is accepted, and it's being what? Pushed down your throat. And if you read Romans chapter 1, and you understand this, that in Romans chapter 1, it says the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven. Why? Because the knowledge of the creator God and the fullness of his of his Godhead, he has revealed in his creation. But man chose to worship the creation rather than the creator. And when that happened, God handed us over to our own lasciviousness. He said, you guys want to be God? Go ahead. You be God. Hands us over to our own lasciviousness. The end result, I'm summarizing chapter 1 of Romans, okay? The end result is that man will exchange the use of a woman for the use of man. And woman will exchange the use of a man for the use of a woman. What's that called? Homosexuality. The fullness of God's wrath is homosexuality will be accepted and promoted. You're not living in a blessed nation, y'all. Take your hand out of the, your head out of the sand. We have been a nation under the wrath of God for two generations. Two generations. When we exchange the glory of God. And I promise you, there are things that you, growing up in this generation right now, have accepted because it's just been the way you taught growing up 
in this culture. Do you realize the United Nations does not record us as a Christian nation? You're living in a pagan nation. That's what it's listed as. Is this eye-opening to you? Again, as I mentioned even in prayer this week, Putin's comment, I'm not saying Putin is a righteous man, he's far from a righteous man, but declaring, trying to pretend like this is a, a righteous religious war that he's waging against Ukraine, declaring the evils of the West, the decadence of the West, and how the West is, is pushing forward all of its evils and harlotries. He's right. He's dead on right. And it's awful when a man like Putin's accusations can stick. These people living in the land had a decision to make as the Greek culture was being shoved down their throat. Would they stand or would they buckle? Some went with the flow. Some didn't. That's what we're going to talk about. So let's continue on. Let's read verses 25 to 28. He shall stir up his power and his courage against the king of the south. He's not done with the Ptolemies yet, right? He's going to stir up his power and his courage against the king of the south with a great army. And the king of the south shall be stirred up to battle with a very great and mighty army. But he shall not stand, for they shall devise plans against him. Yes, those who eat of the portions of his delicacies shall destroy him. His army shall be swept away, and many shall fall slain. Both these king's hearts shall be bent on evil, and they shall speak lies at the same table, but it shall not prosper, for the end will be at the appointed time. While returning to his land with great riches, his heart shall be moved against the holy covenant, so he shall do damage and return to his own land. So what happens? What's all this mean? Well, again, as you saw it very clearly, Epiphanes comes and he, and he attacks the king of the south, because he's not done with them yet, right? And so um, what happens there is he, he, um, he hears that the Ptolemaic Empire wants to retake the Judean territory, which he has command over, okay? And he's extracting what from? Taxes. You get it? So he doesn't want to give it up because it's a what? Resource of money, okay? And he's pushing forth the Greek culture. And so he hears that they're going to go up and they're going to try to retake it. He says, no, nothing doing. I'm coming against you, okay? Um, so he attacks. Now, Ptolemy the sixth. He wasn't four years old when he became king. He was, I think, eight years old when he became king. Okay? And so he had two guys, two ministers, who were helping him. But as he got older, he tried to, to, to grab the command. I think it was 16 years old when he said, Hey, I'm of age. I can be the king now. But if you've been the ones who have had the authority for all these years, and, and now this young whippersnapper who's still wet behind his ear says, No, I'm the king. We'll do as I say now. How do you take it? Not very light, not very nice. Unless you really are, are, you know, that you really were the minister of the king and you were just serving him. And yes, okay, now it's time, it's yours. I serve you, O king. You know, not, not, a, not in doing it all. I've had the power, right? So these two guys do the intrigue against him, right? And so he's able to come in. So Epiphanes is able to come in um, and to, to do battle. Well, they wind up sitting down at a table because now all of a sudden there's this challenge against Ptolemy VI. So they sit down to, to, to make discussions. And, and Ptolemy VI winds up giving all these flatteries to, to Antiochus IV, and, and Antiochus IV says, I'm going to make promises to you, okay? And so they're lies. They're lying to each other, even though they're related to each other. And so you can see, Ptolemy IV was betrayed by ministers, but was restored to power by Uncle Antiochus. And I say Uncle Antiochus, because Ptolemy the, the sixth 
is the son of who, do you think? Cleopatra the first. Yes, exactly right. His Antiochus's sister, remember, who who became the Ptolemy, right? She didn't like dad doing that to me. So it's kind of fun how this all plays out, right? So this is really his nephew that's there. So he's really attacking his own his own kin, his own kin at this moment. And there's a battle within the family. Okay? And so, but they're lying to one another, but he's restored to power um, because Antiochus feels that he can control uh, Ptolemy the sixth more than he can the others. Okay? So on the way home though. He decides to stop by Jerusalem, okay? Because there were people of, of, of Jerusalem who were seeking to help the Ptolemies. He didn't like that so much, right? They wanted to be back under the Ptolemaic Empire because they didn't like Antiochus very much. So Antiochus says, you know what? <laughs> now I'm going to teach you a real lesson. So he stops by. His heart is moved against the Holy Covenant, and so he shall do damage. He plunders the temple and kills many Jews, lots of Jews. He doesn't make a whole lot of friends as he goes through, Okay. So that's verse 28. So let's read now verses 29 to 31. And at the appointed time, now note all these appointed times we're going to be coming to. We're going to see appointed times, appointed time, appointed time. At the appointed time, he shall return and go toward the south, but it shall not be like the former or the latter, for ships from Cyprus shall come against him. That's Rome. Therefore he shall be grieved and return and rage against the Holy Covenant and do damage. So he shall return and show regard for those who forsake the Holy Covenant, and forces shall be mustered to him, and they shall defile the sanctuary fortress, and then they shall take away the daily sacrifices, and place there the abomination of desolation. Those who do wickedly against the covenant, he shall corrupt with flattery. But the people who know their God shall be strong, and carry out great exploits. But that's it, not there, the great exploits, it's in uh, is not there, but it means they're carrying out great things, is, is kind of what's being stated, okay? And those of the people who understand shall what? Instruct many. We'll come back to that later. Yet for many days they shall fall by the sword and flame, by captivity and plundering. Now when they fall, I'm just going to finish this out. Now when they fall, they shall be aided with a little help, but many shall be joined with them by intrigue. And some of those of understanding shall fall to refine them, purify them, and make them white until the time of the end, because it is still for the appointed time. And that's where we're going to end today at verse 35. Okay, so what's happening here? Well, Antiochus the fourth Epiphanes, he comes back again. Amenides, if you would. He comes back again. He's going to attack against them. Okay, so what's happened in the meantime, okay, you kind of wonder, you should have wondered, well, how did he get in the last time? Because who was the, who was the ally of uh, Rome? He was the ally of the Ptolemies. Why weren't the Romans there? Well, because up in the Macedons, sorry, there was a, there was an uprising in the Macedons, okay, because the Romans had come down here and were, were messing around down in, in Egypt, helping the Ptolemies, and so there was a void of, of you know, kind of think war, right? If you got it, so for Russia, Putin's having conversations with the, the president of what? China. Why? He needs help, support, but what was he doing as well? Why what, making sure they don't attack Why? Do you know what Putin was doing? He was moving troops from the Chinese border. Say again? He's securing his flank. He's moving troops from the Chinese border to, for, the, for the battle in the Ukraine. You move troops from, from China border to, to go fight in Ukraine, and now all of a sudden your Chinese border is what? <laughs> it's vulnerable. Okay? So, so Rome had to take their, their, their troops out of Egypt take them back up into the Macedons, okay? Quell the, the fighting that's going on up there. Remember, who was also part of the, the, the uprising up there? 
Antiochus the fourth's father. You remember? Okay? So you got all that going on. So he's able to come back down because there's a void down, down in Egypt. Well, the Ptolemies, then they, they, they start writing letters and messengers up to Rome again saying, hey, you guys, you're leaving us alone and we need you in this battle. And they go, well, we do. We need to be back down here because we can't allow the Seleucids to become that strong. You know, th- th- that'll be even worse. So unbeknownst to Antiochus, they're sending ships down. Okay? And the Roman force in Egypt has, has just greatly increased. Okay? And so Antiochus goes down and to have this battle. Okay? But there really wasn't a major battle that went on. This is where, do you remember in John chapter 8, I mentioned this, that Jesus drew the what? Remember? The line in the sand. This is literally when the line in the sand comes. Antiochus is going down because he's going to wipe out the Ptolemies. He's, he's, he's had it. I'm, I'm just taking control. I'm not dealing with puppet regimes anymore. I'm, I got this thing, right? He goes down, but Rome's there. And so the, the, the one Roman general meets him out before he gets into, the, into the Egypt proper. And when they meet, he goes and he draws a circle all the way around Antiochus. He says, you coming for war? Or are you coming as a friend? You can't leave the circle until you give me your answer. So Antiochus is there. And he's between the rock and the hard place. He thought this was going to be a cakewalk. But now all of a sudden he realized what? Brooklyn's here! No, Rome is here, right? So if you've seen Newsies, you get that one. Anyways, right? And so Rome is on the premises. You know what? I wasn't banking on fighting Rome. We've already what? Twice to Rome. In fact, I was in prison for 13 years in Rome. That didn't sound too fun. I don't think at my age right now I want to go back. Right? So what does he do? We came for peace. And turns around and what? Leaves. But again, he's not a happy camper. So now he knows with Rome on the premises, what's going to be the next step? What's he going to lose? Say again? He's going to lose Judea. You're exactly right. He's going to lose Judea. So, for his one last act of kindness to the Jews, he stops by Jerusalem on the way back through, and he pillages again the temple. But he doesn't just pillage it. He takes away the daily sacrifices, and he offers a pig, a swine, on the altar. Now, if you understand Torah at all, if you understand Mosaic law at all, a swine is unclean, awful. And so what he just did was he contaminated the altar. He caused the altar to become unclean. That is like enough. That's beyond what every, that should happen at all. This is the nail that's driven into it. And so it slides then into verse 32, 35, which we read, into the, the Maccabean revolt. Okay, And so we saw this in detail um, when we went through chapter 8, so I'm not going to go through it in detail now. Okay, You can go back to the message in chapter 8 where we went through this whole Maccabean revolt in great detail. Um, and so Mattathias, the, the, the father of them all, makes the declaration. You know, He's called out. He's going to give great riches and, and if he just um, to accept the gods of the Greeks. And he says, me and my sons will never do that. I'm, I'm making that very concise. 
We'll die before we do that, right? And so that's where the, the war begins. A thousand Jews are slayed south of Jerusalem um, who would not do what the Greeks wanted them to do. They held themselves up in a cave. They, they, the, the Greeks followed them. They found them there. And on the Shabbat, when they would not work, they slayed a thousand of them on the Sabbath because they would not raise. And so um, that was when uh, Mattathias and his sons, Judah, Maccabeus is who you normally refer, refer to when we talk about the Maccabees. That's Judas, Judas, Maccabea, okay? His father, Mattathias, was the one who actually began the whole thing. Um, and so they made a, a decision at that moment. They're going to come after us next. And when they come after us, they're going to come after us on a Sabbath. If they come after us on the Sabbath, we'll fight. We'll fight. Because the battle was not for land. The battle was for the glory of God at that moment. Because they would not worship another God. And so they fought. But then the battle became beyond that. They won that part of the battle. Then the battle became for power over the land. And that's when God allowed them to die and allowed them to be killed. But in Tigus the fourth Epiphanes, we're going to talk more about the concept next week, is the type of Antichrist who will be in the latter days. That's where verse 35, 36, there's this huge gap. Okay? Big space between mountaintops. That's going to happen. Okay? So this latter time was all contained within the first 69 weeks of Daniel's vision. When we get to 36 into chapter 12, it's all about the 70th week. It's really kind of cool. Okay? So God's just given Daniel more details about the 70 weeks. Okay? And so this Antiochus Epiphanes. Now, we're not done because now we get to the most important part. The implications of the vision. Okay? So what? That was all academic. Theoretically. It wasn't to me. It's exciting stuff. Okay? But you can say, okay, it's all academic. So what? Do you realize the, the things that are stated about God here? The omniscience of God? He knows what? Everything. In fact, David says in Psalm 139, he knows the words that I'm going to speak before they ever come onto my tongue. Before I, got, before I know what I'm going to say, he knows what I'm going to say. How does that make you feel? That he knows everything. In fact, like I said, tomorrow, he already knows what's happening to me tomorrow. It's already gone through the sip of his love. The sip of his faithfulness to me. Whatever befalls me, my gracious, loving Father has either caused it or allowed it. I'm not going to tell you which way. I don't always know. But I know He has. Why? Because He is sovereign over all things. He's sovereign over all the affairs of people and nations. He turns the heart of the King whichever way He chooses. He sets up kings and he takes them back down. The book of Revelation is going to happen. I don't think John saw a, like a, a motion picture of what God thought the end times would look like. I think John saw the end times literally happening. Because in God's economy, he's outside of time, space, and matter. Think about it. He created it. He puts you in it. You're confined to it. He's not. How does it make you feel? 
to know that you're already dead and in Christ, in heaven. That's why he says you're already glorified. Romans chapter 8, you already are justified. You already are glorified. It's a done deal. Do you realize I'm already in heaven? I just haven't experienced it yet. How cool is that? You can't kill me. You can stop my tent from living on the earth. But when this tent is done, I'm still living. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. I'm looking forward to the moment. When I will finally be in reality. You think you're looking at reality. This isn't reality. It is to us right now. When I get in the presence of God, that's reality. What am I going to do there? I don't know. Am I going to see my loved ones? I don't know. You're not going to be married. This stuff, from we're going to be married forever. We're not going to be married forever. You're going to be married till you die. Jesus said so. You're going to be like the angels. There's no giving and getting a marriage when you get there. I don't know what all of these are. I'm looking forward to it. My God is sovereign. And however it's going to play out tomorrow, it's going to play out tomorrow. I don't know whether the Russians will finally conquer Ukraine or not. Have they done that yet? Did I miss anything? Okay. I don't really follow the news a lot. I'd rather follow God's news. And so, I don't know whether they'll finally conquer or they won't conquer. And I don't mean that callous. I don't mean that callous. I pray... For um, Zelensky, I pray for the Ukrainians, okay? But I also pray for the Russians. Russians are dying and going to hell. Ukrainians are dying and going to hell. This isn't just geopolitical. This is spiritual. Do you get it? People are dying and going to hell. And hell's a reality. That's the most important part. But God, he knows all things, and he's sovereign over all things. What about me and you? To the people who understand I want to read real fast, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. You say real fast, yeah, because you read it anyway fast. So, so 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 1 to 11. It's not long, but I'm going to read it. It says, But concerning the times and seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you. For you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. For when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them, as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness, so that this day should overtake you as a thief. You are all sons of light and sons of the day. We are not of the night, nor of the darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as others do. We are not of the... Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. But let us watch and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God did not appoint us... To wrath, that was a point of appointments with God's sovereignty, right? But he didn't appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, and whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. Therefore, comfort each other and edify one another, just as you are also doing. So what do we see in Daniel 11, and then again, reiterated here? This shouldn't take what's going to come in the, in the future. It's already been written about. If you've been faithful to read, it shouldn't take you by what? Surprise. There's going to come a time when somebody's going to be given a crown. I'm not going to go into interpretation right now. He's going to be given a crown. And with that crown, they're going to conquer. After that, there's going to be a bunch of wars. There's going to be a bunch of fighting. Potentially a jihadish kind of fighting. 
going on. After that, because of that, there's going to be a great financial earthquake. It's going to be over the, over the earth. As a result of that, there's going to be famine and pestilence, and a quarter of the earth is going to die. So if you've got 8 billion people on the earth right now, that means 2 billion people are going to die. After that, there's going to be the, the, they're going to reveal the fact that there are a bunch of believers who are beheaded, and they're under the throne of God, or they're under the altar of God, and they're crying out how long. That means, that tells me in the first four, first four uh, seals, the first four of the seals that were opened, there's going to be a whole lot of believers who are going to be what? Dying. Do you get it? Martyred. Do you get it? I, I get it. The classic pre-tribulational position, I'm pre-tribulational, but I'm not classic pre-tribulational. The classic pre-tribulational position says that you're not going to go through those seals. I don't believe that. Jesus said in Matthew 24 that wars and rumors of wars are going to happen, and he goes on through all this stuff. And then he says if it was, very, if it was possible that even the very elect would be deceived by some of these things. Do you realize that you may walk in the midst of it? We say, well, we're Americans, we're not going to do that. Do you realize that people around the world are going through persecution right now? They're dying for the name of Jesus. But we live fat, dumb, and happy wanting to live the American dream. And we're supposed to be living for the kingdom of God, not the kingdom of man. So, we're called to be strong in the midst of tribulation. Those who, are underst- who have understanding will be strong. Isn't that what Jesus, or whoever the messenger was, said to Daniel? At the, the prologue of all this? Be strong. Yes, be strong. Why? It's not going to be pretty. It's not going to be pretty. You are going to need to be strong in the midst of all this. The call to edif- be edifying in the, in the midst of affliction. These ones who are understanding, they're going to be doing what? They're going to be instructing others. In the midst of all this persecution, in the midst of this affliction, they're going to be taking the moment, they're going to take an opportunity to instruct other people in the truth. What do you talk about when you're out there? Do you talk about God's word? The scripture of truth? That's what we have. We have opportunities to tell people the truth, to speak the truth in love. God desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. We need to be out there. We, that's why God has left us here, to be witnesses. Not to get a bigger part of something that we're going to die and leave here anyway. We're called to be ambassadors of reconciliation. To draw people, by God's grace, to himself. Some water, some so, but God gives the increase. To edify, to edify, to instruct, to build them up. I don't have time to go into all the verses, right? The call to be sanctified through persecution. It says at the very end there, there's to, be, to be purified. The idea there is to be sanctified, to be set apart. That God allows affliction and persecution upon us. Go back to the series on 2 Corinthians, and specifically chapter 1, right? We're embracing affliction. God has placed these things into our lives to purify us, to make us more like Jesus. Paul says in Philippians chapter 3, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection, in the fellowship of his sufferings, being made conformable unto death. If by any means I might attain unto the resurrection, not as though I'd already attained either were already perfect, but this thing I do, forgetting the things which are behind and reaching forward unto the things before, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high call of God in Christ Jesus. To embrace. Embrace. Not look forward to it as we talk about Sunday school, right? Two forms of persecution, right? 
There's the, the kind you bring on yourself and the kind that's just out there. So this isn't the kind I'm bringing on myself. But it's for the name of Jesus. If it happens, it happens. So, does the omniscience of God bring you comfort or concern? Are you confident in the sovereignty of God in the affairs of the world and in your life? What is your reaction to the potential for persecution? Are you asking God to make you strong? Is it your desire to give understanding to those around you to dispel the ignorance? Is it your desire to be truly sanctified, to be conformed to the image of Christ, whatever it takes? And finally, is there a need to change the way you think and therefore change the way you act? We're going to pray, and then we're going to sing a couple songs, and then we're going to have communion together, okay? And then we'll be, we'll be done for the service, okay? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your love. Thank you for your word. Lord, it is so overwhelmingly wonderful to me as I consider how you have recorded such, with such detail in your word what would go on in these days of the Greeks. And it gives me such great comfort, Lord, to know that just as you know the detail of their lives, you know the details of my life. You know what my downsitting is. You know my uprising. You know where I'm going to be tomorrow. You know what's going to come upon me in these days ahead. Lord, help me to live for you. Help me to be a light of your grace at all times and in all things. I pray the same as an assembly, Lord, that we would desire to magnify you together as a body. For we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.